0: all of these monetary transitions involve people that could think of the unthinkable and that could look past how the system currently is and envision if you were to start with a blank sheet of paper how could it be what what, you know what are the alternative kind of timelines we could be under hello
1: there how are you all doing welcome to the what bitcoin did podcast which is brought to you by gemini the only place i am using for buying bitcoin i'm your host peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it is Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, Choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is is dot Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G E M I N I dot com forward slash WBD. Also, today we have Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin. You can spend Bitcoin anywhere and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners Ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward WBD, which is LVL.co forward WBD for info and early access. Lynn,
2: hi. Hey. Good
1: Thanks to for having me back.
2: <laughs> we will always have you back on our show. Um and it's great to see you in person. Great to see you at the conference. You as well. Great to see things going so well for you. Um. So we're going to talk to the we're going to talk to you today about money, the nature of money. You've written another epic article. Um, I don't know how you produce them; they are unbelievable. I actually, I'm I'm waiting for the Lynn Alden book.
0: I got a couple of questions about that. Yeah, the problem uh, is I I put out so much of this content that I have no time for a book. I probably would take some of the content and kind of organize it into a book, but it's just it's been. Every year's been too busy and another thing kinda of piles on and I've never gotten a chance to actually sit down and
2: write one. Have you so you're thinking about one?
0: I've thought about one a number of times. Uh, I've in, in years ago I wrote like a short like stock book that, that people still buy on my website. Right. So I've I have experience putting together something of that length, but uh, you know, just not recently.
2: Well, it feels like this article, the what is money article you've written, that feels like the framework for a book.
0: It's a yeah. I mean it's over twenty thousand words, so it's a short book essentially on its own. Wow! And then could be expanded.
2: Do you uh, just before we get into it? Um, h- how do you do it? <laughs> how do you? Because you seem to produce something like this nearly every month. Uh, I don't know how you do twenty thousand words like that.
0: So that one was a longer preparation than normal. Okay. it's Length. What I do is I have multiple ones that I'm working on at the same time over the course of a couple months. Okay. And whichever one is kind of drawing my passion. I, I start working on that and if I get stuck somewhere, I'll go to another one until something clicks and I figure out how to make the one I was stuck on better. So that's one an example where I started working on it and then got stuck somewhere and just let it marinate, worked on something else, and then I was like, Okay, I know how to fix this now and I would come back and rearrange it and you know, I wanted to try to tie some of the other pieces I've been working on all together into a big update.
2: And are you having to hide from email and turn your phone off so you can concentrate and focus? Yes. I've, I mean, I've tried to write. I can't do it. It's
0: uh, emails are my biggest uh, has like a uh, biggest challenge is is dealing with the inbox.
2: Yeah, I, I can empathise with that and Telegram and Signal and WhatsApp and especially this week. This week's been insane. Yeah. Um, well, so just so people know, we're um <clears throat> we're on the Saturday after the Bitcoin conference. I'm a bit croaky. Apologise. Um. So okay, let's get into this. Uh, what is money? Uh, why, why this subject? why you, I mean it's been touched on a lot of people have written about it before. why did well can I, can I tell you what I think it felt like you are looking at where we're headed and to look at where we're headed, you need to see where we'd come from
0: exactly yeah, that's a good way to describe it. and I think it's also one of those things where every several decades or you know every better part of a century, there's a big transition you know in the last couple of centuries about how we treat money and how money works. Uh, basically, in part, money is a technology, right? So, and as technology changes, what we consider money changes. And then you add geopolitical, you know, realities on top of that. And so, I wanted to prepare people for what kind of, we're, I think, we're going through this decade. Because it's, it, people often are used to picking investments, getting out of investments, getting into other investments. But they don't often think about the money itself. Uh, and funny enough, people in emerging markets think more about what is money, right? Because they often have to deal with a weak money, and so they they want they want dollars instead, or they want other other types of assets. Whereas people in developed countries hardly ever have to think about money. And it's also there's so many things it touches on because it goes into the whole Bitcoin versus crypto thing. What is money versus what is some VC tech platform, right? It's like all these kind of questions go to what what assets do you want to hold over the course of the next 10 15 years as we go through some of these really big macro transitions and it, it's kind of starting from first principles of, of what is money and then of course the article draws from so much great expertise that is out there some people that are you know long dead from the 1800s um, uh, so, some of the references are older than that and then other people of course that are that are active uh, you know in, in various communities including people in gold people in Bitcoin uh, people in, in Fiat even. Uh, kind of like just all these thought leaders and saying, what is, what is their view of money and how do I interpret that? How do I tie these together? How do I contrast these views of what is money?
2: Uh, so what I'm hoping from this th- is we get a show that I can send out to all my friends who I'm still struggling to get them to even consider the nature of money. And over the last, uh, I would say, 18 months to two years, I- I- I'd used Facebook as a testing ground. Out, so Twitter is that's out there in the noise with the all the other crazies, but Facebook is friends and family. And I've tried to share ideas with with those about why Bitcoin is important, why thinking about money is important, and nothing's landed. And to echo your point, even though we're at high inflation in the UK at the moment, I think I think we're at 6% in the UK. Uh, we know it's higher. Um, we've seen a massive increase in uh, commodity prices. My, uh, my energy prices have up, personally, nearly 300% in a year. Uh, I filled up my car the other day when I went back, and it had, it was something like £120 to fill up the car, probably double what it would cost here. Um, but I still think people aren't fully understanding what's happening to their money. Whereas when I've been on trips with the show, when I went to Venezuela, which was, it was a really, uh, important experience, because people are using five different types of money, uh, ranging from the Bolivar, which they had to use, wanting dollars, some people using Bitcoin, some people using the Colombian peso, and then that stupid crypto they created. We won't talk about that. But they, they really did understand money, and I, I think sometimes you're forced to understand it when it collapses. I think uh, this insidious uh, inflation we go through hasn't forced people to consider it enough. Some have, some haven't. So I think today's going to be super important. I'm hoping this is a show I can put in front of people, and people really think about that, because there is a lot of risk to money right now.
0: Exactly, all, all around the world. So, for the longest time, you only had to care if you were in developing countries where they have currency crises. But now we're going through. Developed markets are going through kind of a debt crisis and an inflation crisis. They haven't really gone through since the last time money had a big change, right? Since since money changed from really from gold back to fiat. Um, that's the last you know big money change that happened, and these this environment kind of looks like that whole environment. And that, that whole thing was a process, right? So you kind of slowly started severing money from gold. It started in, like, you know, the World War I era, and then the aftermath, specifically. And then it carried on to the Great Depression. And then, of course, it, it carried on to World War II. And the end, end of that, we kind of had, like, a loose peg to gold, but not a direct connection. And then it was really in, the, in 1971, of course, it was completely severed, and... That whole period is, we're kind of going through almost like a mirror image today, right? There's a bunch of charts that I show in all my articles uh, of how debt, you know, what debt work looks like, what the what the uh, deficits look like, what interest rates look like, and it's kind of a mirror image of that whole period. And so I think people have to be prepared for the changing nature of money, uh, the digitization of money, so money becoming more digital in various ways, and how... It's easy to fall into traps and think like this is money versus this is not money and it's actually you have to go back to first principles and find out what is what is good money what do I want to hold
2: longer term? Well that's my starting point when anyone does ask me what Bitcoin is I, just, I always say it's just, it's money. That's it. It's just a form of money um, And I, I used to try and come up with these kind of more complicated answers but really I've, I've simplified it down to just explaining that it's a form of money. And then explaining the properties. But an interesting question, I'm going to jump around a bit here, then so excuse me, but an interesting question for me to put to you is, we've had these periods where money has changed and money is a technology. If we had no Bitcoin, or we had no digitization, if it, there wasn't a te- technological change right now, but we were still going through uh, a currency crisis, do you think we would see another change in the nature of money? Do you think the central powers would come together to do a you know another Bretton Woods or another 'Cause it, it feels like we have this weird coincidence that at the time we're uh, we're having this uh currency these currency crises around the world. We have had, fortunately, yeah, over a decade of something like Bitcoin to, to establish itself to be an alternative.
0: I think if you didn't have the creation of Bitcoin, uh one is that gold would be rising a little bit more in prominence uh than it is. And you can also kinda of separate it from the sovereign level and the personal level, right? So We just saw for example you know the 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 case i've been making for a while is that sovereign reserves are going to probably begin diversifying more than they have so if you back up a long time gold used to be the primary reserve then with the whole kind of euro dollar pet dollar system they started putting the u.s treasury at the heart of the whole global reserve system and ever since really 2013 2014 you've been seeing a little bit of a shift back towards sovereigns you know being interested in holding gold as part of their assets because they kind of could you know compare that currency they could treat it like money look at it versus other fiat currencies and it has certain advantages. It has a lower monetary inflation rate um, and it has, you know, you can self custody it in a way that you can't do with liabilities of, of other entities, like other countries, right? So those can be frozen, but if you hold gold in your vaults, uh, it's yours. And so there's been an uptick in interest in gold. It's also the only, you know, alternative money or outside money, you can call it that's big enough to absorb, you know, kind of these large sovereign flows and, but now with the invention of Bitcoin, it's interesting because it's, one, it's more accessible to people around the world. Anyone with a smartphone really can, can you know, uh, for the most part, access it. And it's also, it's too small for many large sovereigns at the point, but it's something that over time could become more interesting there. So I think that in the absence of it, we would see maybe kind of a return to gold, but the problem is that gold was somewhat flawed as money um, you know, it's, it's shortcomings in terms of portability, audibility, things like that. So there, there's a reason why we disconnected from gold. Um, and so I think that for lack of better alternatives, there'd be some kind of shift back. Either people would want to preserve their purchasing power, or even sovereigns would want to preserve their purchasing power and, and sovereignty. But now there's, a, you know, there's another option. So now there's, there's kind of multiple things to look at. And then you have to compare not only fiat, you have to compare gold, you have to compare Bitcoin. You have to go around and be like, what what properties am I looking for in a money?
2: Right, so what I want to do is, like I said, I wanted to be a bit of a 101 for people. So I want to send this uh, show around to people who I think maybe haven't thought about money enough. So I, I want to work through some of the basics with you. I want to help people understand the nature of what makes good money, what makes bad money. And then I want to dig into the uh, uses of money because I hadn't really considered it in terms of, you know, consume, save, invest, and share, which is in your article, which we will share in the show notes. I know I do it. I know I use money for that. But I hadn't considered them individually and what makes good money for those different use cases. But I think it's a, a good starting point to talk about the key aspects of money um, and VJ uh, Boyapati's article, the bullish case for Bitcoin has that grid, which I think is fantastic. I agree. So when we talk, um, and I'll, I'll share that in the show notes as well. But when we talk about types of money, Bitcoin, fiat, and if anyone listening doesn't know what fiat is. It's dollars, pounds, euros, etc. And gold. It's uh, sorry, gold, fiat, and Bitcoin. We talk about these properties and. Um, and w- how each uh, form of money is uh, suitable for those. So do you want to run through them and, and, and explain what makes good money and what makes bad money?
0: Sure. And, and as you point out, this is this has been highlighted by VJ. Uh Robert Breedlove's done a lot of work on this. Safety's done a lot of work on this. It's kind of like going through the properties of, of what makes good money and how they kind of compare to each other. And so you want like a list of criteria. So the, the whole purpose of money compared to an investment or something like that is that you want it to be liquid, you know, safe, fungible. So if I buy a house or a specific company as an investment, that is something that is risky, uh, and that is something that is non-liquid and fungible. Like it's a specific thing, it's hard, you know, it's a hassle for me to transfer it to someone else. That's kind of a, either a long-term bet or long-term savings or a specific plan to grow my investment with risk of loss. Whereas with money, it's, it's kind of the opposite. I want like a low-risk uh, battery of you know storing income now so that I can expend it in the future or share it or give it away or whatever I want to do, and so it's got to be liquid. It's got to be something that I can just you know easily transfer to someone. It's got to be something that uh, is easily divisible, uh, fungible, so that all the, all the units are either identical or nearly identical, um, and it's got to be something that uh, holds its value that I want to you know hold it longer term. And then I want to add other things like you want it to be verifiable. Uh, you want it to be portable and there's multiple ways to break that down. You can kind of look at different monies and, and like, like Vijay did, for example, you can score them on the different aspects, right? So for example, you know, gold holds its value pretty well long-term, right? Cause it's, you know, gold's got a very, very low inflation rate, meaning the amount of gold that, that exists above ground grows at a very, very slow rate historically. And there's a good reason for that. Whereas other types of commodities can grow very quicker. And so gold ends up being a very good store of value, but it has shortcomings in terms of portability, divisibility, uh, verifying that what you actually own is gold, like the ease of being able to do that. Whereas when you look at something like the dollar, you know, they, they've they made advances for how easily you can send it around, right? Because it's, you know, you can have digital representations of it um, and you can, you know, it just, it, it's very easy to move around. Uh, but of course the downside is that, you know, there's no constraint. Uh, on how much they can print other than kind of self-imposed uh, restraint that is kind of meant to keep guardrails on the system and it, you know, stop it from hyperinflating. So there's kind of guardrails on it, but they're self-imposed. And so over time in practical terms, the the rate of new dollar creation is much faster than the rate of new gold creation, right? So when you when you compare those, you think, okay, th- those are interesting. We, we obviously have to pay them for tax purposes. We have to, uh, you know, have some working capital uh, to use them. They're, they're, Liquid, the government uh, specifically does their best to try to control the volatility at the exchange of devaluation, but they try to you know control the volatility of it. Um, and so there's advantages, but they're not a great long term place to store capital. And so when you go down the list, you know each each type of money has shortcomings. And when you look at something like Bitcoin, it's interesting because the innovation there is that it kind of took the best properties of gold and, and fiat and mixed them together. So you have the the you know the slow monetary inflation rate of gold. In the long run, it's even less because eventually, you know, the inflation rate trends towards zero, right, with Bitcoin, um, and you have that scarcity. But then you also have the uh, better divisibility, better portability, and better verification. Uh, and so in many ways, it's across the board better than most other monies, with a couple of weaknesses relative to, you know, it's still relatively untested. You know, it's got 13 years of testing, 13 years of monetization, It's a, it's smaller, than dollars or gold, so it's less liquid, far more volatile, less widely held, less widely accepted. And so what we can describe it as is an emerging money. And all anyone has to do is kind of look at the properties of it and determine if that's something that they want to hold relative to other monies, if that's something that's valuable to them. And I consider it value- So a lot of people still kind of put it in the speculation camp or the investment camp. And I think that's a, it's a reasonable way to interpret it because you're, you're, you're betting that the way it's behaved for 13 years and the properties it's had for 13 years are going to continue. So you, you've analyzed the probability of this occurring. You're, you're, you're making some sort of future judgment about this relatively new system. So that, that makes sense. But on the other hand, you're also, you can literally use it as insurance because it's one of the few types of monies that you can easily self custody. It's more portable than other types of monies. And we've seen this throughout emerging markets, right? It, it's easy to have, you know, it's hard to move across borders with gold or, or, or physical cash. It's hard to transfer bank money around the world. Um, but Bitcoin's something that you can let self custody uh, and, and pretty much move wherever you want. And so I don't think the world fully realized its properties yet and what that means.
2: Yeah, and the interesting thing about VJ's chart is the way he grades each form of money, that can change over time. Yes. But I one thing I I wonder if miss, is missing, and perhaps is missing to the benefit of Bitcoin is volatility. And I, I think price volatility is something which is helpful to understand in consideration for this. Because if you look at the chart or you look at VJ's chart, it to me it implies, oh, well, that's the best form of money. It can do every single thing I want. Therefore, I should hold all my money in Bitcoin. But there's a risk to that because of volatility. Because of volatility. And I always felt like if you wanted to make a decision about which or which forms, maybe multiple forms of money, there's argument to hold a basket of Bitcoin, gold, and and uh, maybe dollars. And I know that's heresy with some Bitcoiners, but I, I think that you can make a solid argument. If you wanted to plan long term, you could have a have a mix. But but to consider that mix, I think volatility should be considered. Do you think that's fair or not? I think it's a huge variable, especially for medium exchange and unit
0: of account, right? So Mm -hmm. basically I would describe Bitcoin as an emerging money. It's a 13 year old money, right? So it doesn't have the track record or the size of those other monies. And because it's a smaller market, it has more volatility. It's got basically a, a bigger range of outcomes for how it could look in 10 years compared to say gold, right? So because there's a bigger gap of of expectations about what this could become, the volatiles, the, the volatility is very large. In addition, because it's a smaller market, less liquidity, even though it's got quite a bit of liquidity, it's got less liquidity than than say the dollar market or the gold market. And that's because it's smaller. And so, you know, if 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 a Michael sailor comes in, they can potentially move the market. Whereas if you have handful of hedge funds fast money deciding to sell it because of whatever macro factor they're looking at uh, that can also move the market and also because it's you know known for good returns there's a you know there's there's even though leverage in the space is actually small relative to market cap or other ways of looking at it there's individual parts of the market that are extremely leveraged and those those easily get liquidated when you have big moves to the upside or downside which exacerbates volatility um, and so it's kind of people are betting on it in a way they don't bet on say gold and things like that or at least not at the scale. And so that adds to volatility. And one way to think about fiat currencies is they they try to optimize for low volatility, but then the sacrifice they make is devaluation, right? So they kind of have this manual adjustment mechanism where if you get deflation, they want to print a lot more. If they start getting inflation, they try to their best to throttle that back. Um, and so and they they've had mixed success with that, but basically you know, you never really have a case where developed market currency is like, you know, 50% less useful the next year, right? Whereas that can happen with Bitcoin, even more so. Now, in extreme historical events, even those fiat currencies, you know, they break down. So they go decades and decades and decades without having a major volatility event. And then you get like a 1933 event where it's just, you know, it's it's, it's practically cut in half. Or you have like, a, you know, emerging markets go through this far more often. The Egyptian pound had a, had a month or just cut in half about five years ago. And, and so that, that kind of thing is common throughout the world, unfortunately, but in developed markets from year to year, the volatility is low. And that combined with the fact that it's recognized as legal tender, uh, makes it, uh, you know, a useful form of kind of like, uh, near-term money, uh, that you just, you can save it, you know, it's gonna be worth roughly the same in six weeks. And, you know, you kind of go about your day. Whereas and that matters for people that where their incomes and their expenses are very close right so if you're if you're living in a country and you're making $400 a month and your expenses are $400 a month you can't have you can't like risk holding a lot of your assets or whatever assets you might have in something that can go up 50% or go down 50% during that time you pretty much have to have a stable amount because you're you have no margin for error whereas of course if you have a large pool of capital you have a better Ability to withstand volatility. So it's kind of a privilege to be able to accept volatility for harder, better money in the long term.
2: Well, Alex Alex I've seen talks a lot about this in certain markets that tether is much more important than Bitcoin. Uh, places, I mean, t- Turkey. What the inflation rate did I see? It's over one hundred percent now.
0: I can't. It was very, very high. Yeah, it was. I think it was high double digits. It was insane.
2: And he talks about say uh, people who in Palestine who you know, struggle financially, and he said for a lot of people in these places they cannot risk. Having a high volatile asset such as Bitcoin because they have day-to-day costs. And maybe they could have a small amount in there and hopefully that in value. But some people live living hand to mouth. So something like Tether has become super important in these markets. And, and when he explains to me the importance of that, I've had to check myself on criticisms of altcoins. And, and I think there are fair criticisms of them. But at the same time, if these are currently solving a problem for people, I, I find it hard to, to to take a firm position against them
0: yeah I've not been I've not been bearish on stable coins overall I think that it, it's obviously an innovation like if anyone who tries sending money internationally stable coins are an improvement yeah uh, it's just better technology um, obviously I'd like to see them on Bitcoin right and so we've actually seen some announcements at the conference yep. about being able to bring stable coins back to you know Bitcoin lightning um, so all else being equal I'd like to see them there be yeah, one of the few cases and all Altcoin land that actually has, has use case, I think, has been the stablecoin market, and and Tether is an example. Whether it runs on Ethereum or others, it can run on any. You know, if, if a chain gets too expensive, it's it are spilling onto another chain, and that is useful for people. And even like an example was Lebanon, where you're they're going through a major currency event. Even ones that were holding dollars in the bank, that's that then is prone to you know uh, confiscation, transferring back to the local currency, and so ironically, Tether ends up being safer for them and holding their dollars in a local bank, whatever, you know, questions people might have about tethers collateral or, you know, things like that, their ability to blacklist addresses, you know, they, they look at that compared to what's happening in their local banking system. They're like, well, I'll take the, I'll take the tethers. And so it is important for people, especially when there's not a, not a big margin between your expenses and your, and your income to have a low volatility uh, asset. And so that can mean, different things to different people. I mean, you know, currencies generally very low volatility over, say, a two-month period, uh, except for extreme events. Then you have gold that's more volatile than that. And then Bitcoin's obviously far more volatile than that. Um, and that's actually one of the downsides longer term is that there's an inverse correlation between volatility and their ability to hold value long term. And so the cost of that volatility management is ongoing devaluation.
2: Okay, so there's going to be a range of listeners on the show. I'm not worried about the people who are understanding how to balance their fiat versus Bitcoin. I think they get it. And they're going to get a lot out of this show just because you bring so much to the table, Lynn. But um, there are going to be some people, I hope, I really hope there's some people here who only hold dollars or only hold pounds and are starting to think about this. And it's interesting, when you start to consider the different uses of money um, taken straight from your article, They used to consume, save, invest, and share. Personally running through this, um, majority of my consumption is with my uh, traditional pound bank account. I use my card and I pay for things, or I withdraw cash and I pay for things. But when we come to saving, whilst I have a small amount in pound, I don't tend to save too much uh, in pounds. It's it's, it's the money I tend to put away for the next year. But anything long-term is going into Bitcoin. Because I know long term, that's why I feel that's a better place to save money. Uh, investing is is kind of interesting because uh, certain things I'm investing, football club, for example, that's an investment of pounds. I've just taken from savings, put that into that. But I can see scenarios where I'd invest Bitcoin into Bitcoin companies. And then when we talk about sharing, actually, the majority of my sharing is actually Bitcoin uh, because that's appreciated so well. And there's so many projects that accept Bitcoin and they accept internationally, I've actually I've actually been doing that. But I think it's it's interesting to start to consider, I actually need different monies for for, for different purposes. Can, can you run through this and, and why you did this breakdown? Because it's actually the first time I've seen somebody do this, and, and it's made me think about money in a different way.
0: Yeah, I think during monetary transitions, that becomes very common to use multiple types of money. Yep. Like you were saying in Venezuela, for example, there's like five common types of money, and that's because they're going through a very difficult time. It's kind of like the more stability there is, the less need there is for multiple types of money. And when you have all these imperfections with different types of money, or at least imperfections as part of their journey. Uh, so for example, Bitcoin's imperfection, we can call it is the volatility, we, we, but you're early on and that that volatility is inevitable, right? So whatever the type of money might be, there's going to be like a downside to it. And so they kind of use that for the things that it solves and use another type of money for the things that that solves. And so when we go back to what we can do with our our assets, right? So, so if we have a surplus of what we generate versus what we, what we do, we can either one, we can just consume it. We can just, you know, use it up in various ways. Um, uh, discretionary, uh, two, we can save it. And the whole point of savings is something that you expect to not be super volatile. Um, but, but that of course is different timeframes. So you might want to save for something six months from now and you need to have pretty low volatility for that. If you're saving up for a down payment on a house, for example, um, compared to something, if you're saving multi-year, you won't accept more volatility, but you still want it to be pretty much a sure thing. You want it to not lose value significantly over the longer term.
2: So, my hold on one second. My Bitcoin is both this saving and investment.
0: That's currently where it is in this in this transition, right? Because it's because it's a more volatile money, and because it's um, earlier on in its monetization process, it kind of blends the category between savings and and uh, investment. And I think it's also partially, the more knowledgeable someone gets on it, they might start putting it more in the savings camp. Um, whereas people that are approaching it for the first time, it, really think about it the investment camp, but really it has, it has aspects of both, right? Because it's, it's this 13 year old asset that's monetizing. And when you hold Bitcoin, you're making an assessment of its properties relative to others, kind of like how you would investment. If I buy one stock over another stock, I'm, I'm making an assessment of its properties and saying, I want to own stock A and not stock B. Same thing with Bitcoin. I'm looking at the at the properties and saying, okay, it's not something I want to hold. If I have a six week, you know, if I'm going to buy for something in six weeks, right? I'm not going to store it in Bitcoin. Um, but it's something I want to hold if I if I want to, you know, make a make an expectation about what's going to happen five years from now.
2: Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the sharing bit because I I definitely didn't think about that as a separate area. If you just said, what do I do with money? I'd be saying, well, yeah, I buy stuff with it, and yes, I save save with it, and I certainly invest with it best with money, but I never would have thought about sharing as a as an important separate category.
0: Yeah, it's its own thing
2: because and
0: you can I like to characterize that as essentially investing in your community. Right. So it, it's another you can kind of put it in the investment category, but it's a very different type because you're not trying to you're not trying to invest specifically for yourself. I, I think a lot of us are you know we're wired to want to help the community around us. That's kind of how we survived as a species. Uh we're not like these like isolated you know, our, our social interactions are a key part of what makes us human. And so sharing is a key part of uh, kind of investing in our community and just helping other people. And so when you have some sort of surplus, you can consume, you can save, you can invest, you can share. And there can be different types of monies uh, or different types of assets, even if you're talking about investment and non-monies, like things like stocks or companies or real estate uh, that serve those purposes differently. And ideally, in the long run, I mean, you'd have one money that can do it all, right? I and mean, maybe, you know, Bitcoin after 25 years can check off more boxes than it can check off now. Right now, it can check off a bunch, and the longer it goes on, it might be able to increase the number of boxes that it can check off in terms of someone's finances.
1: Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack Sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first Sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is BCB group.com slash Peter. Also today, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com.
2: Yeah, it's funny, you, you consider it there as an investment in your community. I was talking to Danny about it beforehand. I actually thought of sharing as more like consumption in that I choose it because I have a choice to spend it on myself or to give it to somebody else. And when you give it to somebody else, you, you have that kind of feeling, that good feeling, like you're helping other people. So I I, I actually also consider it as, as consumption as well.
0: I agree. No, That's a good way to look at it.
2: Yeah. Okay, so that's a really good way to understand the, the different uses of money, and therefore, like you say, during a transitionary period, why you need to consider the monies you have and what you use them for. We are, though, in this transitionary period. Um, very obvious very obvious to us what's happening. Even more obvious to you as somebody who can read the market like tea leaves and spot everything that's happening. Um, I think this is one of the really important things for people who haven't fully understood what's happening for the nature of money right now or haven't fully considered, let's say, all all digital money, not just Bitcoin, the, the advent of CBDCs. Uh, I don't think we should spend too long on the history because I'd encourage people to go and read it and read the other articles that I've done. but. Can you give like a brief summary of how, how we've got to where we are, the, the different transitions, and then we'll cover specifically what's happening in with money right now?
0: Sure. So through that lens, money is technology. Yeah. And as technology changes, our our money changes. And so we can put it in three buckets, commodity money, fiat money, and digital money, right? That is kind of one way to kind of to simplify it. And so commodity money was was the reality for thousands of years where... Uh, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, if, if, if someone, if, a, if someone has apples and they, they farm apples, they want to turn that into products and services rather than try to line up all these people that need apples, she can find a, 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 a third asset, something that everybody wants and sell her apples for that. And then being able to use that as her savings and her, her expenditure in the future. Right. And so you need something that is going back to the properties we discussed that is liquid fungible. Everybody wants it uh, it stores its value pretty well. Uh, it's easy to move around. It's, it, you know, you can transfer a decent amount of value with a, a small amount of space and weight. Um, and so, you know, various, uh, commodities kind of serve that role. And the, 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 risk there is that if technology improves, you can make a lot more of those commodities. And so you can threaten the value long-term of those commodities. And so kind of like, if you look at history, you kind of go up the scale to all these different, you know, you can use salt as money, you can use coconuts as money, you can use livestock as money, you can use uh, copper as money. And as they, as all the, as technology improved, and as cultures with different levels of technology kind of interface with each other, the the harder monies would win out over these ones that technology can devalue. And eventually, you wound up with gold and silver. And then, really, it was it was gold that kind of came out on top in the end. And so that that's kind of the history of commodity monies. And it's because gold has like an inherent kind of a, a difficulty adjustment built in. So. As, we, as time progressed, we got a lot of easy gold deposits, and as our technology improved, we could access harder gold deposits, but it's still, it's increasingly hard to get that gold. And so actually, almost no matter how much human technology improves, we've had trouble making more than 2% more gold per year, right, and, and that's kind of the upper limit, uh, except for a very brief moments where we find a new continent or some, something, some sort of massive step change. Other than rare moments like that, we don't really know how to make more gold quickly. Uh, and so that's why it's kind of stood the test of time compared to virtually every other commodity in terms of being good long-term savings. Uh, but, but because the downside is portability and auditability, it eventually got very centralized. So it would get collected in banks and, and, and claims would be made on the gold. Uh, and then it got increasingly collected into central banks, where not even banks held the gold anymore. And so you had a complete detachment from what people used as medium exchange, uh, partially for convenience and partially due to legal decree uh, you know, governments had an interest in, in, kind of collecting the gold, uh, while people, you know, would, would be expected to use the papers. And then the, but the risk there is that you can just with a stroke of a pen on midnight one day to sever the connection between those papers and the gold. And that's what happened in countries around the world multiple times until it happened permanently in 1971. And so we've been in this era of fiat currency where it's almost like an artificial commodity. So for example, the, the rate of, you know, the stock to flow ratio. So how much Money exists versus how much is, is created in a year. It's higher than most commodities, so that's that's important as a money. It's lower than gold and silver, uh, but it's higher than say oil or copper things like that. And so you have kind of a workable money. Uh, it's it's volatility is managed by the government, and the central bank. Uh, there's various checks and balances for who can create money and and kind of the pro, you know kind of the the number of people have, that have to sign off on new money creation, uh, at least in in kind of these developed markets. But the downside is longer term. Your monetary inflation rate is, you know, seven percent, eight percent, ten percent, fifteen percent, and of course in many countries far higher. And the interest rates rarely keep up with that long term. So you you basically get diluted as you as you hold stake in that network, we can call it a network, you keep your your percentage of that network keeps getting diluted over time by holding it. Uh, in addition, it it still has shortcomings in terms of auditability, right? So for example, in in there's a lot of dollars held offshore, and then those get levered. Uh, and then but those still represent claims essentially for US assets. Uh, and, and there's actually it's a very opaque market because it's, it does not have great audibility. Uh, and also we, you know obviously paper money can be counterfeited. Um, and so it has various imperfections. And so that's been something that's been kind of plaguing humanity for a while, I would say, is that money is this kind of political thing, it devalues. And then especially for people living in emerging markets, it becomes, you know, you have like a hyperinflation event once a generation, at least, right? And so that, that happens in, in developed markets around the world, developing countries around the world, I mean. And so it's it's bad enough in developed markets, and it's 10 times worse as you go down the spectrum. To, if you go towards the, the they call it the periphery of the financial system, people that, you know, countries that don't, they don't have, they're not near the core of the whole money creation process. They're not the Fed. They're not the ECB. They're not the Bank of Japan. They're in these periphery markets, and they have... All the volatility of the system so the developed world kind of pushed the volatility out to them and they get all the downside of the system and none of the upsides and now you know first you had the creation of bitcoin and then you had uh various you know entities study that and say okay we can can we do this to fiat can we put fiat on the blockchain then you get stable coins then you get uh governments look at that and say hey can we just make stable coins like issued by the government can we can we make digital money can we like uh improve our banking rails and people often say that, you know, the dollar is already digital. The fiat money is already digital. Your money is just a, 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 a ledger in a bank mainframe. And that's partially true, but the, the digital change adds a lot of new variables for how much they can track it, how much they can control it, how much they can freeze it, um, how much automated it can be, right? So if you're sending money from entity to entity, uh, it can be much more automated in a, in a, if it's digitally native compared to those old bank rails and so i think one way or another we're going to this future where due to the application of technology money is increasingly digital which makes it more verifiable easier to transfer things like that but of course the huge risk there is that it increases surveillance and control capabilities which you know going back to you know living in different countries that can mean very different things depending on what country you're in you know, a CBDC in Norway could be very different from a CBDC in China, for example, what, what the actual practical implications mean. But either way, it kind of puts people at the, at the, you know, the whim of the entities that control that money. Hmm. And Bitcoin is basically, I would say, the, the creation of commodity money in digital form. So they made something that requires work to produce, which is unlike the fiat currency system and unlike most of these other digital assets, uh, it actually goes back to the days of commodity money uh, except it it improves on that because it makes it more divisible, uh, more verifiable, and more portable. And so we're kind of in this world now where you have, you know, digital bearer assets like Bitcoin being the most, you know, the the, the most immutable, the most, the most money-like out of all of them, commodity money, hard money. And then you have various imitators. And then you have stable coins, which are basically fiat currency in digital form. And then you have you know, nationalized stablecoins, which are centralized uh, uh, CBDCs, where the central bank issues the money and has complete control over how it's
2: used. Digitized commodity money. That's very cool. Never, never had it explained like that in Even, even Satoshi explained like
0: that once. Really? He, yeah, he talked about how he's like, imagine uh, a metal that is, is boring gray in color, can't be used for a lot of things, uh, uh, but it's r- as rare as gold. Uh, but that has one unique property that you can send it over a communications channel. And that's kinda, that, that was one way he, he kind of helped people think about what Bitcoin is. And he's like, if, if for any reason, this kind of weird commodity became valuable, in, in any, if it had any sort of value, they, it could be a useful type of money. Because you could send it to people and they could either spend it or they could convert it to something else and then spend it there. And so that, that's, how, that's one of the ways he conceptualized it. So even he thought of it as kind of a digital commodity money
2: out of control of government. I, I put the Hyatt quote in here. I've actually seen him. I've seen the YouTube clip. I'm going to read it for people. Um, I don't believe we shall ever have a good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. That is, we can't take them violently out of the hands of government. All we can do is by some sly roundabout way, introduce something they can't stop. I mean, that's an incredible quote to to read now.
0: Yeah, because it's, it's, it's Bitcoin before <laughs> Bitcoin existed. He was the first Bitcoiner. Yeah. Um, and it's... And to kind of translate that, so for example, commodity money is dictated by nature, right? So, so nature and our technology against nature determines how much of it we can create and what its properties are. Um, fiat currency is something that is in the hands of the government; they can determine essentially how much there is, who, and who, you know what are the rules about how to use it. And the invention of Bitcoin represents a way to take that all the properties of commodity money, or at least most of the properties, and then put them in digital form and so you have something that's proof of work so you have to expend real world resources to create it and then you know among you know all the different blockchains out there bitcoin's the one that it actually is decentralized and and relatively immutable it's the one that, that that's the closest to representing an actual commodity rather than an equity security a network that requires kind of ongoing governance and, and kind of a centralized hub is the closest thing we have in digital
2: form to a commodity money for you Lynn, did- do you st- still have moments with Bitcoin where you have a kind of like you have a step change deeper understanding of it and understanding of it and become even more convinced by it because just like there then I I hadn't heard Satoshi explain it like that but to hear you explain what commodity money is and then explain Bitcoin as digital commodity money that is another step change for me another kind of light bulb moment ah oh, yeah
0: yeah I think we all kind of approach it from lenses we understand so that was that was my, one of my early ways of approaching it, right. is seeing it as digital commodity money. That's kind of how I, I got it first. And my, all my hesitations were like, what are ways that this could be you know damaged, or yep. how, could it's, how could its immutability be compromised? How could its shortcomings be exploited, things like that? So it's more like, from the very beginning, I acknowledged it as commodity money, and it was like, "Is it good enough commodity money? Just how in the past, different commodity monies would compete, and some of them would be found wanting. And we get kind of pushed aside as money so the whole question was how hard is bitcoin how how is it going to hold up in the long term as commodity money and so the longer it goes the more of its properties you understand it's doing quite well um and so i think for me the biggest implications are just seeing how it can change finance you know the larger it gets and the more developed development that happens on it so for now i'm looking at things like other layers you know what's happening in lightning what's happening on liquid things like that and how that can transform Some of the ways that that all of finance operates and i think the idea of having you know the whole point is you have an immutable base layer and then a programmable other aspects of it so you can do programming on top it's basically programmable commodity money and i think the implications of that are crazy especially when you look out 10 20 years because you know software is one of the few things that just keeps expanding exponentially and it's like what are what is it going to look like in 20 years when you have programmable money and people have been programming on it for for decades.
2: Maybe that's your book.
0: I think I'd have to to hire programmers to help me. I've written some code, but I'm I'm in no means a programmer, so I'd have to.
2: I think more when you talk about how it can change finance, what are the things you're kind of looking out for on these layers? Uh, Like at a rudimentary level, I'm really interested in these new uh, Bitcoin-backed mortgages. I think they're fascinating. for me, like I'm, I've just bought a house and so the timing isn't right. But if it was in now and, and I could get one of these Bitcoin mortgages, they actually, to me, make a lot of sense. But what are the kind of things that you're looking at? Are there big changes in finance you think Bitcoin can bring in?
0: Well, I think longer term, yes. I think basically over the past couple of decades, we've monetized non-money assets because our money's been so bad, right? Because our money constantly devalues. We're like, this is a hot potato. We want to get rid of it. And so we, mo- we put a monetary premium on other things. And that actually makes those things less accessible for people that just want to use those for the utility value. So for example, if I don't know what to do with my money, so I buy a second home uh, and I treat that as an investment, if, if enough people have that practice, it bids up the price of homes and therefore makes buying a first home less accessible to someone who really just wants the utility value of a home. Uh, and the same thing for stocks. We bid up the valuations of stocks because we're saying, okay, I'd rather... Uh, you know, store my money in a diverse collection of, of stocks than in, you know, bond, uh, you know, dollars or treasuries. Uh, and one of the things that if you have the reintroduction of credible hard money, it can demonetize some of those assets, takes take away that extra monetary premium. So they're still valuable. Real estate's still valuable. Equities are still valuable. But you might have less of a valuation premium on them. And that could make them more accessible to people, make their returns better. Uh, and you put that monetary premium in the hard money. So I think that's one, but then two, yeah, you have all sorts of like just improvements. You know, you apply automation to finance. So, you know, you have less friction and gummed up uh, issues in the whole banking system, right? And so it, it's a very manual process and you can take out a large portion of that manual process and automate it. And so if money moves faster, uh, the question is how can that influence economic growth rates? So as, as kind of the world population has aged and, and kind of slowed down, GDP growth has been on the downtrend. And the question is, if you unlock faster money, uh, what does that mean? And, and freer money and more people able to access that money. So, for example, if people around the world that are kind of in these, you know, say, periphery markets that have trouble accessing good money, what what if we expand dramatically the number of people in the world that are able to access good money? What can they do with it? Right. And so that, that's exciting to me because you open up the market for so many more people uh, and talented people throughout the world that can now access this this open monetary network.
2: So if we've gone through these transitionary periods now, we've had commodity money, we had the gold standard, bread and words, the petrodollar system. We're heading into this kind of digitization of money, which we've talked about and you talk about in the article. For you, is this now an, an inevitable change?
0: Well, I think the the digitization of money is inevitable. Um, and then the question is, which which type becomes dominant, right? It's, is Is Bitcoin... Strong enough to kind of push back on government control over it, um, or uh, does it come? Does it run into a number of shortcomings, and uh, you know, governments are able to make their CBDCs rather dominant? And I, I err towards Bitcoin uh, being successful long term. I think it has the properties. Of it's it's hard enough. It checks off a number of boxes, and the, the even the boxes it doesn't check off are within sight of being able to be checked off as technology improves and as it gets just more widely held. And it becomes better, and so I think longer term, uh, Bitcoin is is you can call it the fastest horse in the race. It's the it's the I think the best thing to bet on, even though you know for most people I wouldn't recommend 100 percent allocation of Bitcoin. But I think it's something that's silly not to have any of at this point. I think in 2022, if you have zero Bitcoin, you know I, I think I think the person has to probably spend more time looking into what what that is.
2: Are you listening, Peter Schiff? <laughs> okay, so. If we head into a a world of Bitcoin winning, what do we lose by not having fiat money, government money, whether that's as we have it now or or CBDC? We know governments have levers to help with the economy. Uh, Some Bitcoiners will be like, we don't care, I don't care. But uh, you as somebody who's a uh, a macroeconomics analyst, is there anything you think we lose that we might miss?
0: It's hard. So these types of changes, I think, in it's easy to overestimate what they can do in a couple years, but then underestimate what they can do in the longer term. And so that's the part that's really hard to fully grasp. It could, you know, for example, change the optimal size of a nation state. So if money is more portable, inherently, uh, that kind of opens up the competition between different countries, right? So, you know, before, if it's, if it's harder to transfer your assets, there's more frictions, um, that means the jurisdiction has a little bit more control. If someone can take you know, the vast majority of their assets with them uh, easily, um, then it's like, it kind of opens up jurisdictions as like, you know, you can shop for jurisdictions. And, you know, one implication of that is that's something that's really accessible to the rich more so than the middle class or the poor. And so it kind of, you know, that's something that that really does advantage you if you're kind of privileged in some ways. Um, And so I think that's going to be interesting implications longer term, that might be something that, you know, if, if you can get brain drained out of you know, certain areas that are struggling, where the people that have the resources, that have the skills can get out, and it makes it hard for that area to recover, right? But it's, but it's hard to predict long-term what that means. And I think it's one of those things that it, it changes. I think this is like a phase transition. So it's not something that just happens overnight. So I think it could, it could change governance and things in, in some ways, but I think they're hard to foresee.
2: And it could be, we could go through, through a period of time where we have a government digital money al- alongside Bitcoin, and maybe some countries will launch a CBDC. I'm still not sure it happened here in the US. I'm not 100% sure in the UK. I, I know it exists in China. I know other countries are trying. Who knows? But but for while we wait for Bitcoin to win, or while the, the race is happening, these other currencies will exist. So somebody listen to this, Lynn, they, they're still going to have to consider the, the relationship between what they hold in terms of, say, fiat, and what they hold in terms of Bitcoin. Now, you've talked about developed markets uh, seeing currency collapses. We've uh, raised Venezuela today. We've talked about Lebanon. We've talked about Turkey. There's Argentina. There's plenty of other countries um, that are seeing high inflation and seeing currency collapses. But for the first time in my life, I feel like my domestic currency, the pound, is at risk of very high inflation. Um, there's lots of weird things happening. The same here in the US. So. Just for somebody listening who might un- not understand, what, what is the kind of like worst and best case scenario that you're planning for with regards to what's happening with the dollar?
0: I use the 40s as a lot uh, of a kind of uh, description of what's happening now. And that was pre-war, right? So now it actually got closer, unfortunately, to that comparison because now we're adding, you know, additional kinetic war to the mix. But essentially, the last time that, s- that the developed world was as indebted as now uh, on the sovereign level was the 1940s. And that was a result of all the imbalances during that period, and then the, the large wars. And the way that was largely handled was massive currency devaluation, right? So interest rates would be held low, because if you have 100% or 150% debt to GDP, you can't pay 10% interest rates on that. That's how you, that's how you spiral into, into bankruptcy. So they just hold rates low, even if inflation's double digits. Uh, and that doesn't mean interest rates can't go up, but if you go up from 1% to... You know, 0%, 3 3% inflation's 8% or 12%, or whatever the number is, uh, that you're still getting devalued. Your, your share of that network is being diluted over time. My concern is that as we enter an environment of scarcer commodities, um, as we enter an environment of uh, even just partial deglobalization, so just the lack of continuing of, of globalization, maybe hold on to the globalization we have, maybe, maybe claw it back to some degree, all of those adds friction and inflationary forces to the system. And so I think we have a lot more kind of inherently inflationary forces in, in the real stuff that we need to consume at the same time as the money system, the amount of the, the monetary inflation. So the number of new units being created, the percent increase per year is above average. Uh, interest rates are, are super low and because of the debt, they have trouble raising them. Uh, that's a recipe for ongoing currency devaluation and then throughout the world, that can result in, in you know, kind of massive political revolutions, protests. Well, uh, we're seeing this right yeah, now. I mean, was exactly. it per-
2: Peru I just saw last week protests? Uh, we've seen protests in Turkey, but like we're seeing, yep. it feels like this is a growing issue.
0: Yeah, and I think that generally, whenever you have food prices spike and you have fuel prices spike, and especially when it happens faster than wages can adjust, because those things can happen over the course of a month or as, it's not like everyone's wages just automatically tick up to match that during that month. That's when you get these massive protests because people can't put food on their table. They can't, you know, power their car, or their motorcycle, whatever the case may be. They, they just can't do the things they have to do in order to function in life. And that's when they hit their last straw and they go out and, and protest and it can get pretty violent. And so that's the, that's the challenge of these decades, these decades of commodity scarcity and these decades of big monetary transitions, and there's no silver bullet. There's not. There's not something that someone can do to entirely eliminate risk. Um, and there's going to be people that that uh, are you know really negatively impacted by this. But the way that people can protect themselves is by doing a careful assessment of where they're storing their assets. So are there are they storing their assets in things that can be devalued? Beyond, you know, obviously you need some working capital or at least most people, unless you're super tech savvy, you kind of optimize it to see, you know, be on your own kind of like Bitcoin standard or something. But if, you know, for vast majority of people, you need, you need working capital. You need some kind of low volatility money for, for incoming spending, things like that. But your actual kind of reserve to the extent that you can have them, uh, you want to be very selective with what you own. Uh, and you want to, look at things like scarcity, can it grow long-term? How, what's, its value? what's the value of this thing going to be like five, ten years from now, most likely relative to other things? And then also, depending on where they are in the world, is it something they can self-custody or not? And that's actually, you know, that's one of the rare aspects of money is that unlike, you know, I can't self-custody an equity. It, it, I'm on someone else's ledger if I own an equity. Same thing with a bond. Uh, real estate's obviously, it's not, it's not portable. And so there's actually very few things that you can hold it, and it's a bare asset that just you hold it outside of the system. There's no counterparty risk, and you know gold has traditionally filled that role, where someone can have a small amount of gold and it's just theirs. Uh, is is you know it's 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 an asset that is not someone else's liability. So equities are technically liabilities of the company, uh, bonds are obviously liabilities, um, currencies are liabilities of the central bank. All of these assets. Are some other entity's liability, except for these like fundamental bare assets, things like gold. And then now, uh, over the past 13 years, we have Bitcoin. And it, you know, it's more portable. You know, you can it's you can transfer it with you, print it wherever you go. You can use it for censorship resistant payments if you need to. Uh, it has a variety of use cases. And so I, I think in addition to being an investment, uh, in addition to being savings, it's also insurance. It gives you kind of that optionality. In a way that, that other assets don't.
2: Amazing. Okay, just want to tell you the one last thing that I really liked from your article, because I've never seen this before either. I'm wondering, is this one of yours? Proof of force.
0: Uh, yeah, that was uh, so I've seen people describe it as proof of violence. Proof of violence. Yeah. Because if you, I, you know, for example, I quoted Moser in there. He's the, you yeah. know, he kind of created MMT or kind of re, revitalized an older form of analysis called chartalism, the idea that, that money is kind of, you know, issued by the government. Uh, and if you describe, if you look at his quotes about how the money system works, it is essentially proof of violence, proof of, proof of the ability to exert force over someone. And that can, that sounds extreme, um, but of course, different jurisdictions, that means different things. So even in a relatively benign country, there's, you know, you have to pay your taxes usually in that country's currency. And if you don't, you either get a knock on the door by people with guns or you have to leave, right? And so it's like, if you wanna be involved in that system, you have certain obligations to that system. And so that's how, you know, because one of the ways I want to describe it was, so we had this whole multi-thousand year history of commodity money and and the, you know, harder and harder monies kept winning out over softer and softer monies until you ended up with gold. And then the question was, how did gold lose to paper, right? How did it lose to paper? Because it was the only kind of downgrade in human history where you went to softer money globally. And it's like, how did that happen? And it's like, well, it's because it was enforced. You know, it's something that it either gets really blatant, like in the United States where they literally said, Americans cannot own gold uh, under threat of 10 years of imprisonment, which is kind of insane if you think about it today, Um, or just more subtle things like, okay, you want to hold gold, we're going to tax every time you use it, right? So it's no longer money, it's no longer legal tender, we're going to tax it every time you want to transfer it, we're going to treat it like a, you know, a stock or something like that, Uh, even in some cases worse than a stock, higher capital gains, uh, long-term capital gains taxes in a stock, and so it kind of makes it just inherently more friction to use. And through those various measures, you can enforce the use of a fiat currency. You can say this is the only thing you can pay your taxes with, and 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 moving around every other type of asset is a taxable event. Um, and so that's you know that's how those systems will survive for for decades.
2: Well, I love proof of force. I think we need to meme that into existence as a, a common term for. Uh, attributed to CBDCs, uh, which uh, versus proof of work, I think is an easier way for people to understand why it's a better form of money. Lynn, again, it's brilliant. Everything you do is brilliant. I love this. Um, I, I do want you to write a book because I think it would be amazing. Eventually, I'd like to. But get, I appreciate that. You'll get there. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we leave? You want to tell anyone about anything?
0: I think. Th- I think that covers it. I think the important thing is to have an open mind, right? Because all these all monetary transitions in history rewarded people with an open mind and that doesn't mean your mind's so open that your brain falls out you know that old term like don't be so open-minded that you're not critical right you want to be critical but you also want to be open and so that that involves taking small steps being like you know think through from first principles what does this mean so there are times where we don't have to go back to first principles and reassess everything we can just kind of assume that things that worked out are going to keep working out but there are big transition periods where that's not going to be the case, and you have, to go, you have to go back to the root of what assets you want to own, what is money, what is a good investment, you know, where do you want to live in the world, things like that. Just kind of reassess from, from first principles what it is you're doing here and what you're optimizing for and what the risks are to you personally as well as broadly. And so the interesting thing about the Bitcoin space is that there are people that make a call about Bitcoin. Like someone's like, uh, you know, I don't like Bitcoin because X, Y, Z. And then they get told to have fun staying poor and so they harden they, they like then there's no amount of information that will ever change them like they, they've made their decision and the i think the trick for surviving this decade is to not be like that don't be someone who makes a a viewpoint and then that's your viewpoint now you can never change your viewpoint because your ego is now tied to your viewpoint i think this is going to be a decade that kind of rewards you know uh, someone whose ego is under control. You're kind of always curious. You're always assessing what's going on. What are the risks facing me? What are the risks to my assets? Um, what did I maybe miss a year ago? What did I miss two years ago? And I think that's the way to move forward is to just be open-minded because all of these monetary transitions involve people that could think of the unthinkable and that could look past how the system currently is and envision if you were to start with a blank sheet of paper, how could it be? What, what, you know, what are the alternative kind of timelines we could be under? And I think that's important to think of going forward.
2: I agree. I also think it's a decade that's going to reward people who are signed up to the Lynn Order newsletter, (laughs) which I pimp every time we make a show, because I think it's amazing. Lynn, this is incredible. Love talking to you. Thank you so much. Great to see you again in person. And I just can't wait to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. All
1: right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.